what is literature and what makes literature unique as a storytelling medium? And how has that medium managed to change the world? In other words, what is the power of literature? Today, I'm chatting with a friend and former professor of mine, Dr. Joseph Bentz, who's working on a new book about the power of literature. Joe has written over 10 books, including 12 New Testament passages that changed the world, Dreams of Caladria, Silent God, and A Son Comes Home, amongst many others. His works include both fiction and nonfiction, as you can tell by the titles. He's also a professor of English at Azusa Pacific University, which is how I met him as a student. And he is also a Thomas Wolfe scholar. This was a fantastic conversation with a human being that I very much respect and have gained a lot from personally. So I hope that you will as well. Um, one of the most fun stories I have about being able to interview Joseph Bence is that I was a student of, of Dr. Bence's um, in college and he is one of the first people I asked about the publishing world. And we had a conversation with him about the publishing world. And that was about, oh, 20-something years ago, probably 20-something years ago. So it is a pleasure. It's, it's taking me 20 years to interview you on the podcast. Yes. Um, but it's a, pleasure, it's a pleasure to have you. That's great. Yes, I remember that. I remember you coming by my office back then and talking about publishing. And, you know, I think you've... Uh, done a lot with that and so i've i'm so happy to be on your show i'm glad yeah it worked out yeah oh yeah it was, it was a pleasure you had really good insights um and then i always got like like uh screenplay insights from dr esselstrom and then i mm -hmm. got all of my literature insights um from dr benz which is good because today we're, we're actually talking a little bit about both the power of storytelling but even more specifically um, the power of literature. So uh, I know you're going to have an upcoming book on that, which you've even just kind of barely started. But I thought, hey, let's let's talk about it. That sounds really fascinating. So thanks for yes. being willing to come on and talk to me about it. My pleasure. Can you give people just a little bit of insight into like your personal journey? Like, why did you decide to become a uh, an author? What were some of the subjects that have appealed to you? I know that, you know, you're, as a Thomas Wolfe scholar, that's certainly part of your journey as well. Can you just talk a little bit about your background? Yes, I'm like many writers. I can't even remember a time when I didn't want to write. And when I wasn't writing, I found even things when I was eight years old, stories I have written. So to me, the magic, the power of writing was in my life, even as a child. And then I discovered journalism after that. And in high school, I was editor of our student newspaper and had a really good writing mentor as the advisor of the newspaper. So I thought I was going to be a journalist. And I went to college, was a journalism major for a year, but I really wanted to write a novel. And I didn't even tell too many people about that because it sounded to me, it sounded too pretentious. You know, who are you to write a novel? <laughs> but I switched to English and I switched universities and I did an English degree. And also I love teaching and have done that my whole career. So teaching and writing have been my two loves professionally. So I wrote, I started writing the novel, the first novel. And also I was working through college, then grad school decided to teach at the college level. So I needed 
the masters and the PhD. So I was working on those, but also secretly pretty much writing the novel in the background. It took me 10 years to write that novel. It was my first novel, Song of Fire, came out in 1995 with Thomas Nelson Publishers. And so that is, so I started out as a novelist. I wrote that novel as a fantasy novel. And one thing that I have, you know, one piece of advice I probably gave you 20 years ago that I have not followed, <laughs> you're supposed to pick a genre and keep writing in it. Right. My interests are broad. And so I wanted to write after the fantasy novel, a realistic novel. So I did that. A Son Comes Home, wrote two other novels. Then I got some ideas for nonfiction books and I wrote a series of those. So that's where I am right now. And I've just continued to teach literature and I teach in the Honors College at APU. And so that's, and I write articles. So my interests are always changing. And I'm also a literary scholar with the novelist Thomas Wolfe. And I still enjoy writing about him and speaking at conferences on him. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, uh, when you, when you've written some of the, now, first question is, are you writing any other fiction now as well? Is there, do you have anything percolating in the back of your mind for fiction or is it pretty much just nonfiction right it's now? Pretty much nonfiction. Although I do have a novel idea and when ideas come to me about that book, I write them down. So I have all over my office, I have files and folders and when, and so I don't ever let an idea just fade away. I write it down, put it in that folder and hoping that maybe I'll get to that sometime. So I would, <laughs> I would love to write a novel sometime again, but the projects that are more on the front burner are nonfiction ones and oh, specifically cool. this book on the power of literature and then some other scholarly works. And do you find that as you write um, either fiction or nonfiction, do you find that there are specific things going on in your life that's inspiring? Like what, what inspires some of these works? Is there, cause I know like, so, you know, some of the books that you've written even recently, which by the way, I haven't had a chance to read 12 new Testament passages that changed the world yet, but I would really like to, because that just sounds really fascinating to me, the whole concept of that. Um, so I, I imagine that that has you, you had inspiration for that from somewhere. So where do you get inspiration from? Well, it's different with fiction and nonfiction. So mm -hmm. what has happened with the novels is usually an idea comes kind of like a movie scene in my head. I'll see the movie and not not the entire story, but images little clips, you know, 10 second clips. And so I will write that down and then the story starts to emerge. It's not a very efficient way of doing it because I don't, I don't have a plot. I don't have anything except these moments. And then eventually I, for me, the, with a novel, it, the feeling in my head is not that I'm making it up. It's that I'm remembering it. It's a strange uh. thing. It's hard to describe it. But as time goes on, as I, and I keep writing these scenes, it's as if I'm remembering what happened. So mm. there's a reality that builds up in me uh, for that story. And I 
feel like I'm writing a true story in a way. I mean, obviously there's a part of me that realizes, you know, I'm writing a novel, but there's, it works best when I have that idea rather than just sitting down and writing out an outline for a plot or something. Right, with, right. with nonfiction, it usually starts with a question or an insight. Mm -hmm. So some of my books are on spiritual issues. Mm -hmm. And so something will bother me or I'll wonder about it or I'm working through it myself. And because I'm a writer, the way I process reality and the world is through writing. So I will start writing about it and work through my own issues and then go beyond to see what, what would a reader need to enjoy this. Unfortunately, I've had publishers willing to go along with that and see, yes, I'm not, I'm not just the only one asking these questions, but readers might be interested in this too. That's really cool. I'm taking a similar approach with this podcast and the YouTube channels that I run because for a long time, um, there's always this question of like, you know, why should I put out any content at all? Like what, why, what would, what's the point of that? And so finally I decided uh, after five years of doing this, I decided, you know what, this is the point that I'm going to land on. I am going to start learning as much as I can and gleaning insights and having conversations like this with other people who I really respect and admire. And as we have the conversation and I learn something from it, I'm just going to put that back out into the world and say, this is what I learned. So hopefully you can learn something from it as well. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. You're, you're going to be, you're going to be asking those questions and wanting to know these things anyway. So the great thing about writing and about podcasting and all the, the ways you're, you're much more eclectic and you have a number of a lot more media than I do. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty much a writer and that's it. But with all these things, the, the, the joy of it is that it doesn't have to be only personal. You can also get it out there and it can be useful for other people or just inspiring or just enjoyable. And you meet, I think, writers and creative people generally want a community to share things with. So we're, we're not only drawn to readers and listeners and viewers, but we're drawn to one another. We want to talk about these things. And so that's part of the joy of it. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm glad you said that because um, I had this, I've had this experience with other writers as well. And it's not, it's not a, um, it's not ubiquitous. Not every writer I talk to has this experience, but writing for me, as, as you described as well, and I've heard other writers that I really respect describe it this way as well. Like we, we, we actually write to explore a topic, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, right? We, we write because we go, man, there's something there that I'm either dealing with in my own life. I'm seeing people around me deal with, and I need to gather as many perspectives as I can. And oftentimes those perspectives turn into characters, right? And then these characters wrestle with these ideas. Um, and I, uh, I think it's a really powerful thing to be able to have those discussions. But one of the things I've learned from other writers, and this is what I think relates to my spirituality specifically, is that when you start to talk to another writer who is trying to explore a subject in more detail, not just trying to you know, write what culture wants to hear or write what their religion wants to hear, or you know whatever they're not they don't have an agenda but they're going into it to say I want to explore this topic to come to a better understanding of 
how this actually functions in the real world. Is there truth here? Um, one of the things that's very fascinating to me is how much more empathy they have for other people who don't share their exact viewpoints. Yes. Um, and that tends to be, I feel like, very unique amongst writers because you'll talk to other people who are involved in creative endeavors and a lot of them will say they'll they'll uh you know there's this there's this idea that there's a statement that all art is political um and i don't agree with that statement because i feel like that mean that means that the center of your of your perspective on the world is political but some of us don't have a center that's on politics we have a center that's on something else and so politics is just an input um and so I, I just think that it's really fascinating to find other writers because when they do put themselves in those places and they're not just trying to say something politically or that's backed by a religious belief, but they're trying to get to the heart and the truth of the matter. You often find that people are broken and people need redemption and the redemption is not found by, by, well, redemption is not only found just by being a better human, but also by some, you have to find it somewhere else because you can't find it within yourself oftentimes. Right. Yes. Um, so I like that you said that because I kind of just triggered that in my mind. Um, I have so many questions for you. So I'm going to try to organize them all. I have four questions that we haven't even got to yet that are going to base the conversation on. But even as we talk, I go, oh, yeah, I got a question for you about that, too. Um, my first question before we jump into the main questions is you described sort of this idea that you are almost like a, a historian putting words in the page when you do fiction because it's already occurred and you're just documenting it, right? Right. Um, when it comes to finding uh, kernels of truth in that process, in that fiction, right, in that thing that you, that's just that you're that you're documenting, does that where where does that come as a part of the process? Is that come before you even start putting things down? Does it come as you actually are inside the work itself and you're revising it? What what does that look like for you? It comes when I'm writing the story itself. And if you're talking about themes and that sort of thing, I think for me as a writer, and I think probably for most writers, if I try to impose that, it feels imposed and artificial. Mm -hmm. For me, it the story is where I spend my time and concentration and the themes emerge. Mm. often beyond what I consciously intend. Mm. And it's it's fun to talk to readers about that, especially newer readers like students, because mm -hmm. often for them, they have the impression that authors know everything about what they're writing in terms of what they intend for the themes and the symbolism and all that part of literature, part of writing, but really for, for many of us, it doesn't work that way. Mm. There's something that even we're not aware of that's happening in a story. And by telling the story that comes out and it's much better if it comes out that way, you know, if you look at the most brilliant writers and I'm not putting myself in their category, <laughs> but I teach them, I teach those brilliant writers. It's, you just think it's, it would have been impossible for them to have consciously done all this. It's just mm. too intricate and too amazing and fits together too well. 
So I think they were just working at a subconscious level of genius that allowed them to, to do that. Mm. And we're studying right now, I'm teaching John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, 400 pages of iambic pentameter poetry telling this amazing story. He was blind when he wrote it. He would mm. compose the lines in the evening or overnight and then he would dictate them to a secretary in the morning. It's almost, it just seems impossible that he could have done this and have it come out so brilliantly, but he did it. So I think there's, we, writers need to allow a lot of room for intuition and mm -hmm. for the story to guide them rather than tr trying to impose everything. Yeah, I really like that. I feel like in today's world, there's such a demand for content that it feels like we're either rehashing an old story, we're we're going back to the same wells of creativity, mm -hmm. and it's because we need to content faster because we need people need things to watch. So like people need things to read, people need things to watch. Like get it out as fast as you can. But I really like that because I the again like I said the most the people that I respect and admire the most when I when I consider their wisdom on storytelling it is almost always an explorative process. It is not, and it's not a, um, it's not a process by which you are uh, saying, I'm going to, I really like this story. So I'm going to take that story, change the characters to be something else, change the genre to be something else and just tell it over again. It is really something that comes from a lot of self-reflection, reflection on what society is saying, reflection on what any sort of spirituality or spiritual thought processes are. Uh, so yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, let me get into my first question now. Uh, yeah. We're gonna get deeper into this concept of literature specifically, but more broadly speaking, since literature is a subcategory of storytelling, um, there's been a lot of talk about the power of storytelling. And it seems like we inherently know that stories are powerful um, and we're just kind of reminding ourselves. But I'm wondering from your perspective, what is it that makes storytelling so powerful? What is it about stories that are so powerful to the world around us? I think that for me and for many people, there are really two what there are really two powerful aspects of storytelling. And I enjoy storytelling in many forms, not only literature. Mm -hmm. One is that stories let me in. Mm -hmm. They let me in a reality that otherwise would be closed off to me. And I think that for me, for all of us, really, life is limited because we can only live one life at a time and we can't, but we're curious. We, we have a capacity for more than that, hmm. but we're limited by physical reality. So we can't be a bootlegger in the prohibition era because that was a hundred years ago and we can't, we can't do that. We can't be the King of England in the 16th century. We can't so that we can't be the captain of a starship because there are 
aren't any, you know, all these sorts of things that we can't do. I think there's also a capacity in us for, for heroism that life circumstances don't allow for. There's a capacity for villainy that we don't want to let out. There's a, so story, story allows us in those worlds imaginatively and we can explore what's already in us that really wants to try these things out. I think that's really powerful. We, we are very curious. And the, the second way that I think story works is that it lets us inside other people. Hmm. And I've talked to students about this. I, for a long time, I had this in my mind, but I didn't mention it to anyone because I thought this sounds a little weird. But then when I mentioned it one time to students, they immediately knew what I was talking about. When I was a kid, I remember having this impression. I always felt slightly on the outside of, of everything. And it, it seemed to me as if, you know, and this was, I realize now this is mostly just an illusion, but it seemed to me like everybody else had things figured out hmm. and they were so smooth about how they went through life. And it, 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 they just seemed to know what to do and what to say. And I always felt like I was struggling to just figure things out. And I, all I wanted to know, it, it felt like there was maybe a handbook of life that had been given out to everybody else. And I didn't <laughs> get it. Yeah. So I wanted to know what, is going on in the brains of other people? Do they think the way I do? Do they have the insecurities that I do? Do they have the, the fears that I do? That Do they have the, the noble thoughts that I do? Do they have the sympathy that I do? But we are, it's another one of those things where we can't really enter into somebody else's mind. I can see you right now on the screen, but I can't get in your head it would be fun to do that it would be interesting <laughs> but lit literature or storytelling movies other forms allow us inside other people and we see them thinking we see them struggling we see them deciding things to me that is really a, a, a reason that would be a reason alone to enjoy stories because it lets us inside yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of research out there that has shown like, you know, what stories do to our brains, neurologically speaking, like how does the brain react to storytelling? Um, there's been a lot of uh, like, what kind of reactions? Uh, and why does that allow us to empathize um, with other characters, which then we relate to in real life and see other people and other characters that, that surround us? So that those things definitely resonate with me as well. And I think that there's there's a book called Wired for Story, wherein Lisa Cron wrote Wired for Story, and she basically makes the case that um, the human brain is wired for story because it allows us to understand and interpret the world better. And I think what one of the things that you're you're essentially talking about is that you know the the world is this the world is a very interesting thing because on a very practical level we engage with the world around us, all of the things around us, we engage with it. But to your earlier point about, yeah, but it also, it almost also feels like 
the way that I engage with the world is almost as if I'm watching myself be a character in a story. There's this like duality to that of like, well, what is reality itself? <laughs> you know what I mean? There's this, there's, we, it's, it's this, it's a strange concept and stories really allow us to sort of break the veil of reality. And then that gets us into a place where we are perhaps more ready to look at things from different perspectives than we might otherwise be because of our limited um, point of view really right and so you know point of view is a, is a topic that 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 writers and storytellers talk about because it literally changes the way that we react to stimuli um and i think that that's really really interesting and i totally agree with everything that you you said it's like the power of storytelling is that it allows us to experience things we would never otherwise experience and experience even understanding and learning uh, in a way that facts just can't, don't have the possibility to do, right? A right. fact a, a fact doesn't engage me emotionally necessarily, but a story does, right? It can engage different parts of, of me as a human, um, which I think is really, really fascinating. So I, I agree with everything that you said, and I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, now, you mentioned um, some of the different mediums. Uh, we've already talked about poetry. We've kind of alluded to film. You've even alluded to film in the context of, of prose is like the way you see it and then you write it. So yes. with all these different mediums, we even have new mediums like TikTok and Twitter and video games. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, virtual reality is coming out too. Um, literature is one of those mediums. It is one of the oldest. It is the, is the book that you're working on now, The Power of Literature. Um, but before we understand, before we start having a conversation about the power of literature, how do you define literature? Like what, what in your mind defines the medium of literature? It is, it's hard to define. It's hard to give a quick definition. I mean, there are quick definitions out there, one sentence ones. But one of the things I would say is that I personally make fewer distinctions among the various storytelling methods than a lot of academic people might. So mm -hmm. I see the value of these other ones. So I, I, I agree with what you're saying is literature is one of these. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, what we consider quote unquote literature is um, it, it, it can do things that, that TikTok can't do, but TikTok mm -hmm. can do things that, uh, Milton's paradise lost can't do, or Shakespeare can't do. So I respect all, all of those. I think that when we talk about literature, when I talk about it in my courses, one of the issues that we help, that we use to help define it is the, what we call the canon of literature, C-A-N-O-N, which is those works that a culture considers great and worthy of study. Mm. So that might be a kind of definition of literature so that there are, of all the millions of books, let's say that you can buy on Amazon, there's a canon, a select group that we as a culture, and it depends on what culture you mean, you know, American culture, academic culture that have risen to the top or that we have decided informally, there's no official canon 
of literature, but, but we have decided these works are so good. We need to teach them. We need to write about them. We need to keep performing them. So Shakespeare is in there and Milton and, and Faulkner and Mark Twain and these writers. And there's something about them that is important. And the important mm -hmm. thing about them, often it has to do with artistic beauty. So they're doing just something that can amaze us if we dig deeply into it. Often it's also, there's a universal element to the great writers works so that it says something universal about the human condition. Mm. Also, it may say something important about that particular time period in which it was written. And we mm. want to hold on to that. So a lot of people have read the great Gatsby. Mm. It represents the jazz age in America as one example. So we hold on to it for that reason. So that's what I would say in a brief form about how I would define literature. It's not a definition exactly, but it's at least the realm I think that we're talking about when we when we say literature. Does it now does it have to be as you as we differentiate it from other mediums, does it have to be prose or could it be like does the poetry, does like the Milton, does that fit in the realm of literature as well? Yes, yes. Pretty much if you what the way the uh, shorthand way of thinking of it, which is not a complete way, but it is helpful. If you think of a literature anthology, like mm -hmm. the Norton Anthology of American Literature, which I've taught from my whole career in my American Lit courses, will include poetry, fiction, drama, and some nonfiction. Mm. But okay. yes. And so, and there are problems with the literary canon uh and i don't know if we if you even want to get into that but <laughs> I'll just mention it. one problem is that there there are biases in it sure. so in fiction for example there's there's some bias against certain genres so you mm -hmm. don't see any mystery novels end up in in mm -hmm. what we consider the canon you don't see very many spy novels i love to read spy novels but there are very few in the canon. There, science fiction, fantasy, there's some of that in the canon, but it's not as much as realistic fiction. So there, there are problems with these things, but it's also useful because in a literature course, students on their own will read things or be exposed to things that they don't need a course to introduce them to. Hmm. Some of the great literature they would not experience without a course to guide them into it yeah that's a really good point i'm pretty sure that the course that i took from you was american literature if i'm not mistaken yeah I, I i yeah so that, that that makes a lot of sense and i i i love that course i mean there's so many good there's so many good defining like i will say that mark twain is one of my favorite authors of all time and just what he was able to do i think one of the reasons i really enjoy mark twain is because there's two things that he does that um he he gives you a very compelling story that is about the experience of a young boy 
predominantly, you know, Huckleberry Finn is my favorite. Yes. Um, Tom Sawyer is also very good, but but he also the way he you know we talked about getting into other people's heads. He puts you in the mindset of Huckleberry Finn in a way that Huckleberry Finn starts to break down societal issues in terms of what's my own experience with this societal issue. And then the conclusions that other people come to, do those make sense? Like racism. Does racism make sense given the context of the world that I have and that my experience? No, it makes no sense at all. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy thing. Um, now, I think, of course, you know, we have, uh, actually get your take on this too. I didn't prep you for this at all, but we have the, you know, our culture will say, well, you shouldn't read that book anymore. And I always find that so interesting when it comes to a book like Huckleberry Finn, because I think to myself, the reason you're saying people shouldn't read it is literally the reason why it was written, because you're trying to avoid this, the, you're almost trying to avoid the conversation of racial inequalities and racism and yet that book is about how ridiculous racism is given the context of the character in the moment. So it's a, it's a very strange thing to come to. But what I love about um, Huckleberry Finn and Mark Twain in general is that he's also, he's not, and I feel like this is very strong in the Bible. And of course, as a Christ follower, this is meaningful to me, but the Bible, it, it doesn't sugarcoat any of its stories. It, it'll give you the darkness of the story. I, I oftentimes criticize Christian films because they'll just remove the darkness. Oh, we can't, we can't watch the darkness. Like that, that would be inappropriate for us to watch the darkness. And yet the spiritual book you're basing your works off of does not avoid the darkness. The darkness is very evident. The, the depravity of man is, is very, very present in the Bible. And that's what I like about Twain and about all a lot of these other just amazing writers is that they're not they're not sugarcoating it. They're saying for you to understand this, you have to see the darkness and then see a way out of it. Um, well, and some of them say this is a tragedy, so there's no way out of it. It's just darkness for darkness's sake. Um, nice. But that I find I find really compelling. So the amazing you know, thank you for teaching. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I still teach at Huckleberry Finn every time I teach that course. And one of the amazing things about that book and about what Twain does in it is that he, with even with all those serious issues of race and other serious issues, he also uses humor. Mm. And Huck is funny the way he tells the story. And he's very self-deprecating. And he's a young kid, so he... There are things he doesn't understand that the reader will understand. And so we we're laughing, but we're also being confronted with these harsh issues, you know, including mm -hmm. child abuse, because Huck is abused by his father. Right. And yet he goes on and deals with that and survives. And so it's if you if you would just list some of the themes of that book, you would think there's no way that could be a funny book and yet it is and <laughs> right, right. You know, Twain is able to be very disarming with the humor and deliver the story and these themes emerge from it hmm. I think more effectively because it's also funny than than it would be if it were just some serious treatment of those issues the way we might discuss them more today you know just in political terms uh, Huck is a 14-year-old kid. He has no political agenda. He's just trying to survive. <laughs> exactly. And I think we admire him and want to follow him along with him.
So when you think about when you think about this is the question I did not prep you for because I didn't I didn't occur to me to, to ask it until this conversation. But when you think about this catalog of great literature, and then you think about this idea that you would ban some of it, the question I have is: Are there books that are worthy of banning? And if you were to if you were to go after some of them, what would be your criteria? Like what? Or, or or should it be just no? It should be a free for all. Read whatever you want. Like what? Where do you land on that as a as a as a scholar of literature? Where do you land on that spectrum? Well, almost any literature professor that I know is very reluctant to want to ban books because mm -hmm. that just raises all sorts of problems. So. In general, I'm against banning books, but here's what I will say about it. I, I have become more sensitive the longer I've been teaching about individuals' sensitivities to mm -hmm. literature. And so I've become more, so when I was a young professor, I would just say, I'm teaching this and everybody's gonna read it and it's good for them. And I don't care if they're offended, you know, but now I realize because literature is so powerful, it does have the power to hurt people depending on their experiences, which may be very different from mine. Right. So I'm a, generally against banning things for everybody. But I also think that as a professor, I need to be sensitive to readers who may just be hurt by something. I, you know, back to since we we've raised Huckleberry Finn, I once wrote an article about th that book for a magazine, and what what was happening? It, it, it was one of the, I forget exactly the context of of why I was writing that, hmm. but I came across some research of from a man who was an African American man. And he was, he had written a letter to the New York Times and they had, I think it was some anniversary, you know, so many hundreds, you know, hundred years or two, uh, you know, whatever it was of the, uh, of, of the publication of that book. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, all of you call it a literary classic, but he said, I remember being in school when we were studying Huckleberry Finn, you know, the, the N word is in Huckleberry Finn over mm -hmm. 200 times. And he said, and we had to read it out loud in class. And he said, I just remember how much I dreaded every day mm. and that when we would read excerpts from that and I would have to hear that. Mm. So I understand that, you know, so for him, it was, it was not an enjoyable experience. And so mm. I think that um, I, I try to be sensitive. You know, violence is really hard for some people to read depending mm -hmm. sometimes on their own experience so certain things can really harm someone so if they are if they have a problem with it i would give them something else to read i wouldn't force i don't think people should be forced to read something that will hurt them yeah i think that's very wise that's very that's very good i think too there's there is I think one of the things that you're probably alluding to as well is that how you are exposed to the work 
how you because there is a, there is something to be said for once the creative work is done and i don't know if you've ever had this experience personally but once it's out in the world it is no longer yours to control the interpretation of <laughs> right? right um it's kind of a scary <laughs> scary thought actually as if you tell stories because you go i really hope that people understand what i'm saying in this story and don't misinterpret um, in fact, Nathan, my co-writer and I are very specific to say like, what could this be interpreted as and what do, what do we not want it to be interpreted toward? But there, but you can't control that, right? Like there's a certain amount of um, freedom that people have in their interpretation. And I think one of the things that you're talking about is like, because of that, because it can be interpreted in a way that the author may not have even intended, um, then it there's a, there is a certain amount of care taking in terms of how people are introduced to stories, how they are encouraged to discuss them. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if in your experience, and this may be a societal perspective that is not true, or it may be a societal perspective that is true. I don't know, but have you seen the works, the interpretation of the works being a professor and a scholar of these things for so long, have you seen them shift and change over time? Like, do the students today interpret them very different than when I was a student? Is it is there a, is there a difference there? Oh yes, they, mm. that's changing all the time. And mm. you know, I know we keep talking about Huck, but I mean, it's such a good example of that because mm. let's take and I show this to the students. You know, when uh, Huckleberry Finn has been on a banned list from the moment it was published in 1885. Mm. And so I, I sometimes go to the students at the, on the, when we first starting and I said, why do you think in 1885, they wanted to ban this book? And often they will think race, something about the race. It had nothing to do with that. It was banned. And I show them a, a statement from a, a library board that banned it. Wow. It was banned because it uses bad grammar. Uh... Well, Huckleberry Finn is telling the story. He's an uneducated 14 year old, you know, bad grammar and just things that that were offensive to them because their idea of literature is the main character should be a role model for uh, how to behave. Well, yeah. Huck is not a role model. He is, right. <laughs> you know, not in not in those ways, not in using good grammar and things like that. He's a role model morally, maybe. But that so it, the book was banned for that. Well, we have changed our view of what literature is supposed to do every generation reinterprets its literature yeah it's so fascinating <laughs> it's such a fascinating thing oh but it's great I, I i appreciate you leading people in that in that interpretation that's awesome um now you're writing this book about the power of literature we talked a little bit before the show started about what prompted this but for the sake of getting it on recording you know you're thinking about literature. You clearly have a, a a lot of experience with it, both as a practitioner and as a as a professor, a teacher of it, plus a scholar of it. You've seen literature from more sides than most people will ever see literature from. What prompts you to suddenly say, you know what? I think I want to write a book about the power of literature. <laughs> what prompted me was the general education literature courses that I teach, because mm. every. At my university, every student is required to take a literature course. And I love teaching those. I love teaching them. Not everybody loves teaching them because students come in sometimes skeptical or afraid of them or even hostile toward them because they have to do it. Mm -hmm. So often the, the 
the thing that I hear is English is not my best subject. I've never been good at it. I've never really liked literature. And I have found ways over the years of introducing literature to them in a way that sh that helps them to enjoy it. So one of the things that I say in, on the first day of a general education literature course is, if you don't love literature more by the end of this semester than you do right now, then this class has been a failure. Mm. I don't want you just to learn it. I want you to enjoy it more. Mm -hmm. And that's really one of my goals. And so I thought that's my target audience, even though I hope other people will enjoy it too. But how can we get in touch with the power of it, the beauty of it, in a way that we can see that this is not just a, an academic subject to endure, but this can open up joy in your life. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so going a little bit deeper into this power of, of literature, um we've talked a little bit about how it can change perspective it can cause you to empathize we've talked a little bit about that but if we compare literature to other mediums um and i do have a specific question for you about that too because one of the things that you had mentioned earlier so before maybe before i get into this question specifically just so we can understand that the mediums that i'm thinking of and I'll just share a personal experience and then I'll relate that back to something you said earlier. It's so funny because I've written two, I'll call them books. I'll call them books. <laughs> and the reason I say it that way is because um, both books I've had people say, I've had people say to me, well, they're not very literary, right? They, they, they'll say to me, they're not, it's not like, it's not very literary. Now, what, what I've taken that to mean in just follow up questions and trying to understand what they're talking about is that there is a perception that literature has certain elements to it um, which are not present in all, let's say, written material or books, fiction, fiction. Um, and a lot of times what that translates to is people telling me, you should turn this into a film or you should turn this into a TV show or, or something along those lines. Um, so before I ask you what separates the power of literature from the power of film versus the power of whatever else, video games, I'm, I'm wondering if there is if there are specific things you could say, is it just that someone has decided what literary canon is, or is there a literary nature to works that is separate from what we would call literature, if that question makes any sense at all? <laughs> it makes sense. It's I don't think that there is a checklist of literary elements or something like that. I think that certainly if, let's say, a novel is, let's say a mystery novel is simply following a formula and it, you know, a whodunit and, and you know, you, you, you have all those elements in there and it's fun and you figure it out and there's lots of suspects and you think it's somebody, but it ends up being an unexpected person. You know, that can be entertaining and fun, but it doesn't take you any deeper than that. So in that way, uh, that's probably an example of something that is good and worth 
having, but it's not literature. Mm. Whereas uh, a novel by a greater novelist would have a depth of theme. It would have a depth of, of reality, a depth of universality that, that, that just fun formulaic mystery novel would lack. Right. Right. Interesting. That's very, very fascinating. Um, so with that in mind, there is, there is, um, I'm just using the word power, um, without defining it. I'm assuming we're defining the word power by the strict definition of the word that it has an impact, um, on those who engage in it. What do you think separates literature and gives power, gives literature power that is separate from other creative endeavors. So that, that is separate from film, that is separate from, um, cause it, and you kind of, this, the reason this podcast even got um, scheduled was because you would kind of put that question out onto Facebook and I interpreted it because you said, what's the power of literature in your mind? And I interpreted it specifically through the lens of saying, well, it's, it's, if it's not film, what's different about storytelling via the different mediums. So I'm wondering from your perspective, given the different mediums, what is the specific power of, that literature has that maybe other mediums don't have? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make those distinctions. Mm. So I would think of it a little differently. So I think that the, those, so film, I love movies and I think they have, they have some of the same powers that literature has. Hmm. So let's just, if we just take the film, let's compare films and novels. I love both of them, but so literature is often harder than those other genres. Hmm. Let's just be honest about it because, you know, if you're going to read a Faulkner and I love William Faulkner, the hmm. sound of the fury all these great novels that he wrote light in August. And I, and I teach those. And so they tell a story, they do what a film does. They're harder to read. He's using all these techniques, these narrative techniques. He, uh, there's a depth to it. There's there all the, all the, the things it, it's harder, but there is a payoff mm. to that effort that it takes. So it's a different experience than you get with the film. Hmm. I value both of them. They're both in the same realm, but there is something about reading for me, at least I love Faulkner. There's something about reading one of those novels that takes me to a, a deeper psychological, spiritual, mm -hmm. existential level than I can get in a movie. Mm. So there's a payoff to that effort to get to that depth, but it's harder to access it. Interesting. Interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, I have, I have one example of how I believe that could be the case. And then a, a question about um, maybe a question about, how the functionality may be slightly different different so because one of the things i've noticed between one of the things i commented on on that facebook post that you put out was that there is a unique um there's a unique function of 
that literature has that is almost impossible to capture. Now, when I'm saying literature, other prose can capture it. Other fictional prose can capture it. Maybe even nonfiction, non-fictional prose can capture it. But like a film can't capture it. Not, not really. Films have tried to capture it, but they just can't. And that is, uh, again, being inside the thought process, being inside the head of the character. Because in a film, you know, people have tried to do that and it never really comes off quite right. Um, one of the power, one of the powers of film that maybe literature, literature can evoke vi the visual stimulus, the visual stimuli, like it can evoke visuals, but film just gives you the visuals, right? So it's a very visual medium. Um, whereas with literature, you could say, okay, well, in film, I'm gonna have the main character narrate stuff to you, right? But it almost feels like uh, in the film community, especially that would be seen as like, oh, that's, a, that's kind of a cheat. And it's like, you could just show it to us visually. They don't have to say it to us in their heads, you know? Um, and, I'll, and I'll give you an example of what I think that equates to, given what you were saying about like, where something is a little bit more difficult to, to work through. Um, have you ever, I, I assume that you haven't, but have you ever read Game of Thrones or watched the Game of Thrones series? No, I haven't. Okay, <laughs> I didn't think so. So, so I won't do any spoilers or anything for those people who haven't seen it. Um, but I read the I read the first two books first, and the first two books are, if I remember correctly, yeah, they are third person perspective, but they follow different characters. And so, in that third person, it, it is omniscient, so we can understand what the characters are experiencing, what they're kind of feeling as they go through these. And it's meant to be, uh, you know, the whole Game of Thrones series is meant to be sort of like a fantasy version of what the Middle Ages were like for people living in, you know, in that time period. And they are horrific. <laughs> there, are, there are so many depraved things happening to multiple people. And I read the first two books and I stopped after the end, end of the second book. And this is not me necessarily arguing that they should be considered literature, but more so that they should be that the format of them is similar to literature. It shares things with literature because they're uh, because it's prose and it's fiction. Um, and I could not read anymore after the second book because I went this this is literally causing me to be depressed. And I'm not usually affected like that, even if even with books or anything. But I was like, every single thing that happens to these people is horrific, and I can almost feel it because I'm inside the minds of these characters. I can I can see what's happening to them, and I feel it being horrible. Um, there are incestuous relationships. There are there's child abuse. There it's just it's just it's it's very very intense. So then the, the TV show comes out and a bunch of my friends are telling me how great the TV show is. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how could you say the TV show is great? Because I mean, like, if it shows what I think it shows, that's crazy. Um, but that, but eventually I was convinced to watch the TV show and I realized something from the very first episode that I was watching. And that was I wasn't inside the minds of the characters anymore. Mm because i was now removed as a viewer i could not get into their minds i could watch over their shoulder but it wasn't omniscient and when i'm watching them over their shoulder i also have other things going on inside my head mm -hmm. this character who was meant to be 14 years old is, or is portrayed by someone who's 25 mm -hmm. these two people in an incestuous relationship 
are clearly actors who are not you know brother and sister father and whatever so so it was it was a very like i found that the series was much easier for me to um watch without getting this heavy weight feeling than it was to um to read the actual book and so there's something i think in the power of literature that is it's almost like in there's an inseparability between your response to what's going through your brain prompted by the words on the page versus what's prompted by visuals on a screen. Yes. Um, and so I, just, I wonder if you had any comment on that in terms of how that works. Yes, that's, I think that's a, a big important difference. And, and that's what I, I guess that's what I mean by the, the idea of payoff. Mm. So in, you know, you're, you're talking about it in a, in a negative sense, in a way that, you know, that, <laughs> that book is so horrific that you, you didn't want to be in the minds of those people anymore. If you look, if you kind of turn that upside down and, and think about in a positive way, what happens with literature, I have, I, I'm planning a section in the book called the books you need, finding the mm. books you need. Mm. And for people who love literature, like I do, there are certain times when I need to read Thomas Wolfe. Mm. I need to enter into that world. Psychologically, I feel that need because there's something in there that when I read it, I think, yes, this is true. This is reality. And it's not the reality I'm living, but it's reality in some other way. There's, there's, some, there's a depth to it. And it's hard to describe but mm. but and there are different books that i need different authors i need at different moments in life mm. those are the types of things i'm trying to get at in the book and what i would say is i'm not i'm not trying to pull people away from the other genres i'm not saying you know read literature instead of watching the films read literature instead of video games i understand the value of those what I'm really asking of readers is experience those other things, but don't write off literature. Mm. I think that's what a lot of people have done. That's what a lot of my students have done on the first day they've come to class. Mm. They have had a bad experience at some point with literature, maybe a teacher that they didn't like or something like that, or they just weren't mature enough for it or something. And they've just decided I'm not a reader. I don't like literature. Well, I try to get them to reconsider that. Maybe you were too hasty when you made that decision. Let's try it again. Let's enter into this again mm -hmm. and think of it in a new way. And often it works. They really, they, even with specific works that they've read before, we'll read them again. And they say, this seems so good now. I used to hate this. Why is why does it seem so good? They they're different people than they were mm. before. So that's, that's awesome. I try to get get a, you know invite them into that. One well, saying they're different people than they were before is that's power. I mean, if you can yeah. change, if you can change a perspective, if you can change a behavior, if you can change a thought process, um, that is that is really really powerful, particularly in today's world. Um, I am going to be fair to film for one minute because I do think that um, we're talking about the power of literature and, the, and, the, and it's almost like we need both in our lives. But 
I will say that one of the things I do appreciate about film is that the emotions of film are almost more for they're almost more for the audience as opposed to the character that's in the book. And and the reason I'm bringing that up in that way, and and then maybe it's an unfair way to say it or a a not completely thought out way of saying that. But I just think to myself, like I very rarely, it is rare for me to be, to experience literal fear um, in like a horror kind of way, reading a book. Like you can give me a Stephen King novel and I'll be like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of scary or it makes me feel uneasy. But if you make me watch a horror movie, I actually feel like terrified (laughs) during the process. And Mm -hmm. I think so I'm not seeing it from the character's perspective. I'm actually putting my I'm sitting there in the theater and the thing on the screen is causing me to actually be scared as opposed to what's going through my head. Because I find a lot of times um, when I'm reading a book, what's going through my head is the thought process processes of another character, which I might find horrific. But I don't. It doesn't scare me necessarily. You know what I mean? Like, so there yeah. is there, there's a different power to different different venues, um, certainly. So I've got I've got two more questions for you if you've got time for them. Sure. Um, the first is a little bit more in depth, and the last question is very easy. So we'll we'll end on an easy one. Um, but this next one, I was listening to a podcast at one point in time. Are you familiar with um, uh, what is his name? um brett weinstein are you familiar with brett weinstein at all he's 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 a highly politicized figure these days because he's a uh evolutionary biologist not a person of faith and he was having a conversation with jordan peterson who is a um psychologist and also probably some people would say he's a person of faith I'm, i'm not really quite confident of that so we're not talking about people like you and i who who share a belief system about christ but two people who would be seen as like thinkers and philosophers that should be listened to. And they're having this conversation. And in this conversation, they are talking about evolutionary biology and how the thing that separates us from animals, humans from animals is the ability for human beings to delay gratification. Now, granted, you and I would sit here and go, well, human beings were created differently than animals. So that off the off the top, we would probably disagree with the assessment, let's say, um, that they're that they are that they're coming from. But they say delayed gratification is the reason um why human beings are separated from animals. Cause even animals that have perceived delayed gratification, like a squirrel who stores up nuts for the winter. That's just a, that's just an inherited trait that they have. It's not like a cognitive process. Um, so that's the first thing we, that, that they say, delayed gratification. Then they say delayed gratification is the basis for religion. And so if we can delay gratification until we're dead, meaning that if we act appropriately on earth, then we get a better afterlife, right? Um, that's the basis for religion, but it is also the basis for the rise in civilization. And if we did not have those things, we would not be where civilization is at today, which brings them to a conclusion. And this is where my question is going to come from. I just want to give a little background to, to, to see how they got there. Um, in terms of talking about this aspect of delayed gratification that religion is is largely based on from their perspective. Brett Weinstein made the statement that um, something could be metaphorically true, but literally false, 
which then begs the question of 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 having Jordan Peterson then goes, well, what is the divine then? Is is something divine because it's true, or is it divine because it's um it's actually so true that it could be literally false and still be divine? And I and I think that that's a really interesting question when it when you actually take the lens of them talking about it from a cultural, societal, philosophical standpoint about the evolution of the evolution, their perception of evolution of the species and and current culture. But my question is actually, and this is what I'm turning on to you, is when it comes to fiction and nonfiction, fiction is to Brett Weinstein's earlier point, meta oftentimes metaphorically true but literally untrue, right? Like it, right. the events did not occur, but it is metaphorically true. I wonder is it, is there, can fiction be as true as nonfiction? What's your perspective on that? Yes, in a way. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I would go back to what I was talking about earlier with when, I, when I'm writing a novel, mm-hmm. how the... It's, it feels as if I'm remembering it. Mm. So, and I don't know that, I don't know if I'm approaching this in the way you, you were thinking, but obviously a novel is not literally true or, or else it wouldn't be a novel. Right. But they, the books, let's say the books that I read over and over again, which is another sign of the something is literature that it, that it, it, it's worthy of reading more than once and still has something to offer. Mm. that becomes a part of my reality Mm. so that it so that those characters though that world exists within me in in a similar way to how real people exist within me and real Mm. memories do so it's not literally true but it is still a reality inside me i mean think of the great stories that just stick Mm. with you and that will you know something that will happen will trigger a thought about that character or that story think Mm. about the 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 characters that you know so well that they seem real they seem as real you you even feel that you know them better even than you know some real people in your life (laughs) right um so that in so that's how i would process that at the moment yeah. And, and and that's the way I process it too. I, I do believe that. And, and I think that there's something to be, to be, um, there's something to be gleaned from that as well. Cause one of the things that I did a video on that conversation between Brett Weinstein and, um, and Jordan Peterson. And my conclusion was maybe, maybe it actually, maybe Brett's wrong and it's actually all true. <laughs> and then, and then you're in big trouble because then it's like, it's not just you. In other words, what Brett is actually indicating is that, he knows it's he knows it's untrue and therefore he even has a superior truth but he's going to keep believing in the lies because it's better for him which is a bizarre thing to 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 get to in your mind right um it takes a lot of it takes a lot of um what word would i use it takes a lot of pride to say no i understand how the world really works and i realize it's all false but I will keep operating in that way just because it's better for me. Right. Like it's a, it's, there's a very, it's a very interesting way of putting it. Yeah. It sounds dishonest, doesn't it? Yeah, it does I, sound I, dishonest. I think, you know, we, as much as I love literature and fiction and that I still, 
make a distinction between that and reality, the reality right. that I live. So I think, yeah, it would be very dangerous and just dishonest to meld those two together as if there's no distinction. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. But I do think, I do think though, that there is this, there is this, um, that there is this thing about the human species, which is probably also something that makes it unique because I don't know that this is true in any other um, species is that we can tell each other things in terms of story that can get to truth, even though all of the elements of it are manufactured, right? So, and I think the, the best example of it is, is uh, if you believe uh, that Jesus told parables and if you look at those parables, there's unbelievable truth in them. Right. But they're just made up. They're, they're not, they're not an exact, actually an mm -hmm. exact example of something going out, but rather something. And, and there is, and I do believe that there's something too, that when we, when we craft story, I can tell you about an event that happened. And sometimes events that happen in our lives are very chaotic. They do not have a lot of structure to them. There's no first act, third, second act, third act. It's, there's no beginning, middle and end. It's just this weird chaotic story. And yet we as humans have almost a, a built-in ability to derive meaning from chaos and then communicate it to one another so that you understood how I felt experiencing the chaos even though it, there was there was not anything that you, in other words, my interpretation had to be made for you to understand what the chaos felt like for me, right? Like, right. Um, and it's this fascinating thing that we we have the ability to do. So I do think that fiction can be as true as nonfiction in terms of the idea that it's attempting to portray or the concept that it is attempting to um, help us share. But you would have to, you do have to, I agree with you, distinguish between what actually happened versus what may, what you may have manufactured. Right. Um, and that's important too. Uh, and of course, you know, we live in a world where there's so many, there's so many types of storytelling. And, and unfortunately, some of it, some of the things that shouldn't be manufactured are now being manufactured so that we believe something um, about them, even if it was just chaos and there's no actual explanation for it happening. Um, there are ways in which, fiction let's you know back to jesus parables yeah. there, there are ways in which the story communicates truth better than nonfiction. so if you take the prodigal son that story is more powerful than any summary of it could be or any just summary of the theme which would which would not have the the power that the actual story does so yeah that's i think probably why jesus chose to use that method yeah well there's i think there's something too and this is where i disagree of course with brett weinstein is that there is something it does appear to me that there is evidence of a creator and there's evidence that the creator is god the father jesus christ holy spirit that is presented to us in our everyday lives however there's some there are some things that we have we would have to say I don't understand why that is true until the other story is told to me. In other words, um, because, because God is not uh, immediately evident to us in the way that the material world may be, 
until you tell the prodigal son story, I may not understand how God would operate because I only understand how I would operate. And I wouldn't operate the way God would operate. I would operate somehow differently. And so there's this there's this idea that through metaphor, through storytelling, through an ability to have a conversation that gets at what is actually true, which I think can be actually, this is where I disagree with Brett Weinstein. I actually think that you can actually start to pinpoint that the truth of those things is far more critical than that would make it um, unlike a story that you or I write, the story that God wrote is actually true as well. It's not a lie that you need to tell yourself to, to feel better or be better, but there's actually, you can put pinpoints in it to go, well, if it's not true, then if it's not true, then there's literally no reason for anyone to have hope in the world right. to be, to be frank. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate that about what the Bible does with its storytelling, because it reveals God to us in ways that we are not otherwise, we lack the ability to understand, right? So it's mm -hmm. through the storytelling that gets us there, which I think is really cool. Um, okay, so last question I have for you is an easy one. <laughs> and that is, what are just some of the things that you would recommend for people who they, they listen to this conversation and they go, wow, I haven't read enough literature recently. I should read more literature because clearly it has power. Clearly it could even change my own life. What, what in the world should I read? What would you recommend to them? Well, I would, the first thing I would say is read what you want. In other mm -hmm. words, read what you're drawn to, not what you think you should read or because anytime you get into, oh, I'm going to read this because it's good for me or, you know, it's like, <laughs> doing a diet or something it, it's, it just kills the joy of it yeah. so i think that would be very individual for people so mm -hmm. i would say get recommendations from people you respect or who are like you in your taste but read what you're read what you're drawn to i like that answer now now if you were saying some of the things that you're drawn to that are literature because I've already given my example of Huckleberry Finn. What are some of the ones that you would say, like, this is really meaningful to me personally? And and I find, I, would, I hope other people would find value in it as well. Well, of course, Thomas Wolfe, Look Homeward Angel. Mm. That's his first novel. And it's brilliant. And mm. it's big. And it's beautiful. And it's a great story. So I would start there. But I know that not everybody likes that uh, so that's why i'm reluctant to name too many things but and faulkner i wouldn't start with faulkner frankly mm -hmm. because i think um if you're a little reluctant that might be a little bit further down the road but wolf mm -hmm. is certainly a good one to start with it depends too on you know there are certain people that i would recommend ernest hemingway to because the style right. and, and the but there's other people that I would not recommend him to because I think they would be turned off by him. So it's a little hard to, to say people are, are very different, but the liter the, there's plenty of literature out there to choose from, mm -hmm. from things, you know, hundreds of years ago to things being written 50 years ago. So there, there's, there's, there's plenty out there. Uh, take my course, take my literature course, and we can all experience it together. There you go. That sounds amazing. So, um, one have you ever seen? Uh, have you ever seen Midnight in Paris, the movie? 
Mid yes. Mm-hmm. So I would say if you're if you're not sure what kind of literature to read, go watch Midnight in Paris. Look at the different characters who appear in that film and then look up what they've written and what the descriptions are of those people. And then maybe take a stab at one of those because there's a there's a host of really fascinating characters who are based off of real life people who wrote literature. Right. Um, it's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. Anyway, it's I, yeah, it's, it was. Yeah, it, it was amazing that that even got made. But yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Um, can you tell other people, you know, if obviously uh, the power of literature isn't out yet, but if they want to read some of your other materials, if they want to kind of keep up with you so that when the power of literature is out and available, they can they can purchase that. What's the best way for them to do any of those things? Uh, well, I have a website, josephbents.com. I also am on social media. I'm on Facebook, mainly Facebook is my big one. I'm also on Instagram, not much on Twitter. So they could just look me up any of those places. Okay, perfect. And if you're just listening to this conversation, Joseph Benz is spelled J-O-S-E-P-H. And then the last name Benz is B-E-N-T-Z. So it's just, is it josephbenz.com? Yes. Perfect. And all oh, my, there you go. my books are all listed there and described and other things there too. Oh, that's awesome. Perfect. Yeah, I was, I was, I was there. I was, I, even though, you know, I know you very well, I was like, well, I better make sure I know which books I should put in, in his, in his bio and those kind of things. So, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to be on the show with me. It's taken too many years to get to this, this point, but, uh, it was a really, uh, it's very meaningful to me to have you stop by and have this conversation. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. It's been fun. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Joseph Bentz about the power of literature. As I said, you can go check out his works at josephbentz.com. I'll put a link in the show notes down below. What do you think about the power of literature and how is literature different from other storytelling mediums? Please share your thoughts in the comments or save them and post them over in the How Stories Work Patreon community, which is a community of storytellers and writers. Love to have you join over there. By supporting the show and being a part of our Patreon community, you can actually submit questions that I will ask directly to our guests. It also allows you to respond to our shows and then I'll read those responses on future shows. So if you have some thoughts about the power of literature, share them over there and I will share them on a future show. Thanks for listening. If you have an idea for a future show or a question you'd like to have answered, support us on Patreon and submit your questions there. A link will be available, as I said, in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I will see you on the next show. Now, let's go write something awesome.